indeed, so that you may believe. We've been in our study of the Gospel of John, with some interruptions, but not many, since we began the Gospel of John last Easter Sunday morning. The time period from, from near the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John's public, I mean, Jesus' public ministry is inaugurated within the ministry of his cousin, John the Baptist, up until basically now in the Gospel of John is a period of about three years. Um, we come in chapter 12 to the last week of Jesus' public ministry. In chapter 13, we will begin to look at the last night of Jesus' ministry before the cross. But John's version of the events of this last week and the, the highlights that God the Holy Spirit led uh, the Apostle John to show us. Last week, Pastor David gave us a look at the, uh, the immediate aftermath of the raising of Lazarus. You'll recall that John's gospel is organized in part around these seven signpost miracles. Seven miracles that Jesus did for the explicit purpose. The word that John used, sign, is the same word that a, a, a writer of his time period would use to describe a highway marker, a directional indicator. <clears throat> this way to eternal life. This way to a savior are what these, these signposts are meant to, to show us. From, from water into wine to the healing of the official son, the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the man born blind, and seventh and last, the raising of Lazarus. And the echoing of that miracle the raising of one back to life who had been dead for several days in such close proximity to Jerusalem. It didn't happen within Jerusalem, but, but Bethany is just over the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. It's, a, it's sort of a key suburb of Jerusalem, and word has surely spread. Now Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He had been in Jerusalem before, of course. His public ministry had taken him uh, as far north as the area around Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee and as far south as Jerusalem before and even on the other side of the Jordan River on a couple of occasions. But here, he, he comes in a different way. He comes presenting himself as king. One of, my, one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, uh, I love to read what this man has left us in writing. He's, he's, he's gone on to heaven now. Not a terribly scholarly source, but an amazing Bible teacher was J. Vernon McGee. If you're not familiar with Dr. McGee, I commend you. His writing is typically published under the, the, the title that he uh, also did some radio broadcasting under through the Bible. And McGee says of this moment in the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus borrows this donkey and rides into Jerusalem on this day, McGee says, quote, this is the most public thing he has ever done. He steps out publicly and presents himself as Savior and Messiah and King. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast 
heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Remember, when they tried to name him king right after the feeding of the 5,000, he would have none of it. Here, he receives it. Reading on. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat, a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. My title this morning, The King Comes to Jerusalem. The king comes to Jerusalem. He is, he is in the middle of the, the collision and confluence of two separate groups of people, each of which is said to be a large crowd. If you have your Bible and can look up just a bit to chapter 9, the, there is a large crowd of Jews that have learned that Jesus is out in this suburb, out in Bethany. They have heard of the resurrection of Lazarus and have come to kind of investigate that miracle. And they are called a large crowd. That's outside the city already sort of coming toward the city with Jesus. And then verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast. That's a crowd that's already in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so whatever, whatever multitude this is, it's large crowd times two. It's a whole lot of people that are, that are there as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Roman numeral one. Their misplaced hope. Their misplaced hope. They were right about some things, but they, they had missed a key point. In fact, letter A on your outline, they were right about the Messiah. They were right about the Messiah. In this moment, this, this multitude waving their branches and crying out, they understand that one is coming to Jerusalem with, with claims to Messiahship that, that far surpass any that had ever been made. This, this age in the life of Jerusalem was well populated with false messiahs, but none had fulfilled prophecy the way Jesus had. None had been born of a virgin. Certainly none had, had re, not reinstalled, had installed for the first time working eyeballs in someone who never had any. Cause to walk someone who had been lame, called back to life, someone who'd been dead for days. There were rumors that he could speak to weather. <laughs> Those rumors were right and, and bend weather to his will. Here he comes. They knew he was special. They knew that he was more than merely human. By the way, a, a good theology of Jesus, a good Christology, 
will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is fully human. In fact, Jesus Christ is as fully human as though he were not God at all. He is also as fully God as though he were not human at all. So we would state that Jesus Christ was fully human. But we would also state that Jesus Christ was not merely human. Huge difference between being fully human and being merely human. He's far more than merely human, and they knew it. In this moment, they're right about the identity of Messiah. Letter B, they were right about the moment. They were right about the moment. It's Passover. Now, there is a, a fascinating prophecy regarding this specific Passover found in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Uh, it's uh, a bit complex to have a look at that. So I'm going to devote the Beyond the Notes podcast this week to looking at the, the prophecy of the, of the 62 plus 7, the 69 sevens of Daniel chapter 9 in this week's Beyond the Notes. If you've never tracked us on that podcast and you're into prophecy, this would be a good week to start, but I, I need to warn you in advance, there is some math. So if your expectation is there will be no math, uh, this is not the podcast for you, but if you want to see one of the most remarkable fulfilled prophecies in the entire Old Testament, this specific year is, is a remarkable prophecy. But it's Passover. Passover, the, the, the time of year when we look for a deliverer, when we remember Moses. And the amazing deliverance that God sent through Moses when his people were captive in Egypt, God sent a deliverer to lead them out. On this Passover, God's people are being held by the Roman Empire. And maybe, just maybe, this, this ultimate deliverer whom God has sent us, this one who has demonstrated his lordship over Life and death. Maybe this Passover moment is the moment when God will deliver us from bondage to the Romans. Well, they were right about the moment. They were even right to consider Passover deliverance. But they missed something important. See, the, the greatest problem, if you recall the Passover narrative, the story is unfolded for us, the narrative in Exodus chapters 12 and 11. It's the, it's the tenth and final of the great plagues that God sent upon the land of Egypt. This last plague, God's judgment is coming. Every household in the land of Egypt 
even including livestock, is going to lose all of the firstborn. The righteous condemnation of God is coming. The just wrath of God is going to fall. Only by sacrificing a lamb and brushing some of the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and the overhead lintel of your house will your house be passed over when the wrath of God comes. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood, that is, the blood of the lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. No amount of good work on your part will spare you the coming wrath of God. Your ethnic identity as a Jew will not spare you the coming wrath of God. Your faith and your heritage, your religious habits, will not spare you the wrath of God that is to come. Only, only the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of the Lamb. See, they were, they, were, they were right about the moment, the Passover, but they were looking for the wrong deliverer. They had convinced themselves that Messiah as deliverer would capture Moses and lead them out from their political bondage. The great deliverer of the Passover is not Moses. The great deliverer of the Passover is a bloody lamb. And the problem is not bondage in Egypt. The problem is the onrushing judgment of a holy God. And only the blood of the Lamb. Reading on in Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27. This, this was not to have been forgotten. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What is the, the message of the Passover? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. They were right about the moment. They were right about the Messiah, but let her see they were wrong about the mission. 
they were completely wrong about the mission. It wasn't Moses that was the best picture of the deliverer they were to be seeking. It was the lamb. John the Baptist had said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They were thinking, surely, surely if a savior, surely if a, if a superhuman Jesus is coming into our setting, Surely he is here to solve our political issue. Surely he is here to solve the problems of this world. Surely a savior will be primarily concerned with the things we're aware of we need saving from. Surely Moses will lead us out Egypt's not your big problem. Your sin is your big problem. The on-rushing wrath of God is the big problem. And the deliverance we most need is not deliverance from the world's situation but from our own sin. You say, well, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. Join the crowd. Wave your palm branch on Sunday. Yell crucify on Friday when Jesus is not the Savior you expected. That's what this crowd's going to do. They got the mission wrong. Roman numeral two. They're mistaken, Hosanna. So they took palm branches, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You know what? They made the right plea. They made the right plea. Hosanna means save us now. They're yelling the right thing. They're even yelling it at the right person. They're crying out to the Savior for salvation. A good thing. And they even offered the right praise. Their cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, is from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It's the right praise. He does come in the name of the Lord. He is here for the first time willing to publicly and humbly bow his head and accept the title from the mob, the title King of Israel. They're not wrong. They've got the right plea and they've got the right praise. But in this moment, they've believed the wrong promise. They have, they have misapplied and misunderstood God's word in a self-serving way. What do I mean? <laughs> the Old Testament is, is well populated with messianic prophecies that speak of things like the, the restoration of the throne of David. What, what Jew, especially a Jew living under Roman domination, what Jew wouldn't want that? 
the making of all things right. Amos chapter nine is given to to some beautiful pictures of a a restored fallen world because the, the king has returned declaring himself king and making things right. Messiah has come as a conquering king and one day he will. But they had stepped right through prophecies like the entirety of Isaiah chapter 53. Make it pretty clear that before he comes as a conquering king to set the world right, he comes as a suffering servant to pay the sin debt for all who will believe and follow him. They believe the wrong promise. I've been saved since right before I turned 10. Jesus saved me in the fall of 71. right before I turned 10 years old. I've known him, therefore, for 50 years. I'm so glad he cares about me. I'm so glad that I'm not alone. I'm so glad that he is involved in the small and intimate parts of my life. But his death on the cross, his mission as Messiah is not mostly about solving our lesser problems. His mission as Messiah is not about solving our lesser problems. Brother Russell, define a lesser problem. Okay, I'll help you with that. Any problem that time is going to solve anyway. Are you all worked up and bugged about the Roman Empire? Give it a few centuries. And nobody will be bugged by the Roman Empire. Are you bugged and anchored or bothered by your present economic circumstances, your present health circumstances, your present family circumstances, your present financial circumstances? Jesus cares about all of those things, but time alone will solve every one of those problems. When they put what's left of you in the ground or in the oven, those problems will be no more. Jesus' death on the cross is not mostly about solving any problem you've got that time is going to solve anyway. Jesus' death on the cross is to solve the problem that time will make worse when you face an eternal collision with the on-rushing wrath of God and only the blood of the Lamb offers you any hope whatsoever. 
That is why our message, our teaching of God's word, the, the light of our focus, the volume of our voices is centered upon not some current event that time is going to solve all by itself, but by our eternal difficulty, our sin debt before a holy God. May our gospel testimony as a church, yes, speak to and address the entire counsel of God that God's people would think biblically. But as we do that, we will find that the heart of our message, the heart of the hope that we offer, the heart of the warning that we offer is Jesus Christ and him crucified, the blood of the lamb. They believe the wrong promise, or at least bad timing. Roman numeral three, the master's humility. The master's humility. One, one day he's gonna come on a custom-built white war horse. All horses scare me. I'm not a good equestrian. You say, Brother Russell, that's silly and childish. I bet you've got some silly, childish fears as well. I don't like horses. They scare me. And there ain't never been a horse like the horse he's gonna come on. Even if horses don't scare you, that one will. Can you imagine the king of kings, white war horse, custom-built for the purpose? Whoa. But this time, this time he borrows a donkey. Borrows a donkey? Letter A, his vehicle. A prophesied donkey. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. You can be sure Jesus knew Zechariah 9.9. You can be sure that Jesus had said to Zechariah, write this down and get this right. So that when I do it, they'll know it's me. And so from Zechariah 9, 9, John tells us, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His victory, letter B, a purposeful death. Oh, how the crowd that day wanted the Messiah to accomplish for them a victory in their present circumstances. They wanted him to fix the Roman Empire problem like Moses had fixed the Egyptian slavery problem. After all, Passover deliverance is at hand. But his victory would be a purposeful death. His victory would be, again, not the deliverance of Moses, but the deliverance of a lamb whose blood forestalls the wrath of God. In our case, this final lamb absorbs entirely the wrath of God for those who believe. And on Friday, he's going to absorb on the cross in a finite space of time the wrath of God that would take you and me an eternity to absorb. His purposeful death as he who did not know sin becomes sin for us on the cross on Friday. Oh, he's coming. He's coming to Jerusalem at this moment to, to accomplish a great and purposeful victory, but it's by his death. It's by his death. And it's, it's, it's proven by his resurrection a couple of days later. 
Well, his disciples are confused. Let us see his vindication, the puzzled disciples. I'm so glad that these original hand-picked followers of Christ were a bit thick between the ears. Do you know why I'm glad these first disciples were a bit thick between the ears? Because I live within the skin of a follower of Jesus with a spectacular tendency to be a bit thick between the ears. And I'm in good company. Even, even, well, it says here, the disciples didn't understand these things at first. In fact, even as late as the first chapter of the book of Acts, even after the resurrection, right before the ascension, they say, okay, Jesus, all that's good. Is this when we get our kingdom, you know, with the comfy chairs and the big authority? Is this when we get to do that? Acts 1, 6. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not wrong. <laughs> but after Jesus was fully glorified, the Holy Spirit came and the church was launched to the ministry of these men. Oh, then they got it. His vindication comes in his puzzled disciples. This morning, I don't know what lesser things you'd like to be saved from. I don't know what lesser problems are sticking in your craw. I've got a few. But let's Let's see past those. Let the, the volume of our voices and the light of our teaching and the truth of our testimonies speak of the one who delivers us from our sins, not merely the one who addresses our situations. Our situations will resolve with time our eternal condemnation will only resolve by giving our hearts to Jesus. The Lamb, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world.